today a portion of my message uh, in following Paul's train of thought is going to be addressing what I would call one of the more acceptable sins in the church. My experience has been that too many Christians have a relatively lax conviction when it comes to avoiding drunkenness. When in fact, drunkenness is something that God's Word speaks very clearly about. As in the case here in Ephesians 5, where Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, commands followers of Christ, do not be drunk. See, there's no command in Scripture not to drink alcohol. Throughout the history of the church, that at times has become a bit of a problem in the church where there has been times where we say, no alcohol at all, you're not allowed, that's not in Scripture. Scripture never commands that you cannot drink alcohol. We are permitted to partake of it. We are permitted to enjoy wine or beer or whatever it may be, but we are to enjoy such things the way that we are to enjoy all things in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to enjoy them with temperance. We are to enjoy them in moderation. We are to enjoy them with self-control. We are not to be indulging in them. And I think one of the errors followers of Christ make with alcohol is they have this approach that permits excess, that asks a question, something similar to, how much can I have before it's sinful? Instead, we should be asking, how do I honor Jesus in my enjoyment of it? See, it's one of those areas as followers of Jesus that we, we take this approach where we say, how close can I get to the line of sin without it actually being sin? Instead, with everything in our life, including this, it should be, how close can I get to Jesus as I enjoy the good gifts that he has given to us? And so what I feel obliged to press right off the start of this message this morning is that we have to wrestle uh, with some things as evangelical Christians. We have to, to wrestle with how we approach certain commands in God's word as evangelicals. Because in evangelical Christian circles, we pride ourselves on God's word being the highest and the most infallible authority, right? Which is good and which is right. God's word is the highest authority. It is infallible. And from that correct perspective, God's word is going to be the foundation for so many of our arguments against things that we see that don't align with God's word. They're going to be the foundation of our argument when we see things like progressive movements of Christianity calling what God has called Sin, sin to no longer be sin, whether it be the redefining of marriage or the redefining of sexuality. And again, it's good to stand on God's word. It's good to stand against those things, those perversions of God's word. But we can't hold fast and argue emphatically for portions of God's word and portions of God's commands while intentionally dismissing or reducing others. That's hypocritical. Jesus said something about this. He says something about a log and a speck. And so we need to be careful of that. Yet I think that's a little bit what's at play, at least to an extent, when it comes to drunkenness amongst followers of Jesus. God's word is clear about drunkenness as it is about sexuality. Yet I see it dismissed. I see it excused. I see it presented as not a big deal. But you can't actually argue that from God's word. You can't conclude that 
from God's word. In fact, Paul would say it's a very big deal. Because in Ephesians 5.18, he conveys drunkenness as the antithesis of being filled with the Spirit of God. He presents them as polar opposites in verse 18. So church, here's what I know to be true about those of us here this morning. That if we compromise, it will not be in our approach to sexuality. It will not be in our approach to redefining marriage or anything like that. It will be in our approach to something like drunkenness. We will be much more lax towards that than the redefining of marriage or the redefining of sexuality. And yet, Paul says, God's word says, do not get drunk. Like we know which one we're more likely to rail against. We know which one we're more likely to be like, that's not that big a deal. And I'm contrasting these two things intentionally because I'm trying to show us our tilts. I'm trying to show us our tendencies and to remind us of, of what I spoke about last week, that it's so much easier to throw stones, right? It's so much easier to throw stones at the sins out there. It's so much easier to be angry with the sins out there, but it's the sins in here. It's what we allow amongst us that's going to destroy us. And so my first concern is with those of you in this room, not the people out there. Those are not the people that God has given me to shepherd, to steward well. It is those in this room. And so you need to know the Holy Spirit is deeply grieved by the flippant way that this sin is accepted. And, and the consequence of drunkenness for followers of Jesus is a severe quenching of the Spirit's work, a severe quenching of the Spirit's power in your life. All sin quenches the Spirit of God to a degree but I think it's of unique importance to, to recognize Paul's direct correlation between drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit of God. I don't think that's accidental. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So my aim today as we continue our series, Lord of All, is to expose the great lie about alcohol, the great lie about drunkenness, and then I want to give a gospel reason for sobriety. And then I want to expound on three things about the Spirit of God based on these verses from Paul. Number one, what Paul means when he commands followers of Christ to be filled with the Spirit. What does that actually mean, Paul? And then number two, how are we filled with the Spirit of God? And number three, what are the evidences of the Spirit's fullness in our life. And so that's where we're going this morning. I'm going to first address the issue of drunkenness and address the great lie that exists around it. And my aspiration is to give a gospel reasoning for why we should not give ourselves over to drunkenness. And, and just so you know, church, when I'm talking about drunkenness, I'm talking about marijuana. I'm talking about anything else that would fit in that vein of altering your state of mind. It's all in there, okay? So you can't squeeze out one of, the, one of the sides there. Oh, well, he was just talking about alcohol. I'm going to say something controversial. 
Many of you are not going to like this. I'm going to attack the idol of coffee for a second. Don't throw stones at me. I know, I'm, I'm not looking over here. Uh, <laughs> like coffee, okay? Never felt so much tension from a church before. <laughs> Woo! You're like, you're not a coffee drinker. You don't understand. Uh, <laughs> like coffee or cigarettes. Can we admit that alcohol doesn't taste good the first time you try it, or even the second time. Like, coffee doesn't taste good. Cigarettes don't <laughs> taste good. Alcohol does not taste good the first or second time that you try it. Right? This is why they're called acquired tastes, because you have to grow in your enjoyment of the flavor over time. So, What's that? Yeah. Nick doesn't like vegetables. Or vegetables. But the, the thing is with these, these kinds of acquired tastes like coffee, like, like alcohol, like cigarettes, there's an interesting psychological question attached to the reality that they're acquired tastes. And that is why, if they taste bad, do we keep going back to them over and over until we acquire a taste for them? Right? And, and some of it can be accounted for because of the cultural expectation that's attached to these things. Look how angry you got that I was touching on coffee. Some of you got to go before the Lord about that, I think. But, so there's this cultural reality to it, but I, there's something deeper as well. Because with each example, whether it's coffee, whether it's cigarettes, whether it's alcohol, we get something from them, don't we? Right? Ultimately, as human beings, we go back to things that we get something from. And these things have an effect on us that makes us willing to endure the taste in order to reap the benefits, in order to reap the effects. And so if it's coffee, it's, it's energy, right? We go back to, I mean, there's some of you in here, like you wake up in the morning, you're just like, I can't do anything until I have my coffee. That may be something you need to bring before the Lord too, I'm just saying. Uh, cigarettes, right? People go out and they smoke cigarettes to calm their nerves, Alcohol, there's so many different reasons why people go to it. And so we're getting something from these, which keeps us going back to them. And this is a, something that we can expand upon in all areas of life. We go back to things that we get stuff from. But when it comes to alcohol specifically, there are two great lies, and there's probably more, but I'm going to touch on two, that are attached to the consumption of alcohol that our world believes, and maybe some of you believe or did at one point in your life. And so the first lie that's attached to alcohol is you need alcohol to have fun. Like some of you grew up and you're like, I don't, what are, what are these people, how are they having fun? They're sober, right? Like you, you grew up thinking you had to be drunk in order to have fun. It's this cultural understanding that's attached to it, and it's a lie. Right? And some of you had to discover, wait, no, you can actually have fun sober. Right? It's actually a thing that you can do. But so many people believe that, which actually ties into the second line, which is so much more dangerous. And the second lie about alcohol, about drunkenness, is it brings freedom. It brings freedom. I'm sure you've heard this. Maybe you've thought it yourself. Alcohol brings out an unrestrained, uninhibited version of me. Hey, there's this, this thing we believe that, that when it comes to alcohol, you know, that whatever comes out of us when we're drunk, it's, it's the real me. 
Right? Like when I'm drunk, that's the real me. Like I've put off restraint. I can finally be myself. I can think and I can say what I really believe. And, and I don't have to care what other people think. Right? And then on top of that, it, it calms our nerves. So we, we feel unencumbered. It, it even feels like it helps you cast off your cares, cast off your burdens that you're carrying. The problem is it's a lie. It's a facade. But it endures like all excellent lies because there's elements of truth to it. See, it's true that alcohol brings things out of a person. Jesus says that nothing comes out of a person that wasn't already in their heart. So the alcohol is not bringing anything out that wasn't already there. It's just a catalyst to open the flow to the heart, but it's not a good one. So while drunken you is you, and you may feel more unencumbered, and you may have a semblance of freedom, it's a cheap substitute for the real thing. Like, I I so appreciate what Marshall Seagal says on this topic. He says, the you that comes out when drunk is a small, pitiful, broken, and incomplete you. A you that's marred by sin. A you that's consumed with self. A you that's blind to the truth. And a you that is numb to reality. In other words, it is a shadow of what God created you to be. Drunkenness, he continues, he says, Drunkenness may expose and unleash things deep inside of you, but it doesn't have any good news for the darkness that emerges. It will show you all of you and then soothingly promise that laughing at what you see will make it all better. If you've fallen for this lie, lie, you know what Marshall Seagal is saying is true. Yet some will go back to it over and over for moments of relief in place of true freedom. Drunkenness offers freedom, but it's a lie. What it truly offers you is enslavement to a false sense of euphoria that cannot last and keeps you chained to it. It does damage to you physically, it does damage to you spiritually, and it leaves you worse off than you were before. I mean, even just from a natural, physical perspective, we have a name for it. It's called a hangover. It leaves you worse than you were before. So I understand that it's often hurt. For some, it's it's habit. For others, it feels like it's a need. Maybe there's comfort there. There's a promise of fun that leads to drunkenness. And those, those four things kind of encompass basically all the reasons people get drunk. Hurt habit, need for comfort or something else, and fun. And what I hope that the Holy Spirit exposes in our hearts this morning is that those reasons for drunkenness reveal a thirst within us for true freedom from hurt, for true freedom from our habits, for true comfort, for true joy that 
points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not alcohol. See, the world will turn to drinking because the world doesn't know the power of Christ to quench our need, but we do. And if you don't, you can. So to the one struggling with drunkenness, do not miss out on the greater thing that God has for you by giving yourself over to a lesser thing that will entrap you. That promises something it cannot deliver when there is true freedom available for you in Jesus Christ who always delivers on His promises. See, there's a choice between medicating ourselves and true freedom in Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Oftentimes we will medicate ourselves because that road to true freedom is painful. It takes work. It means facing some deep and some dark things in order to get there. And some of us are unwilling to allow Jesus to chisel away the things that he needs to chisel away so that we can get to freedom. And so we stay here with the drink. And church, if that's any of you here this morning, my hope for you, my prayer for you, is that you would trust your Savior enough that He can walk you through the deep, the dark things, the hurts, the habits, the hang-ups that are inside of you. He can walk you through all of those things. And there is true freedom in Jesus Christ on the other side of those things. And you will need help. And you will need brothers and sisters to walk you through that. But you can do it in Jesus because you are more than a conqueror. You don't need to give yourself over to this lesser thing. You have something greater waiting for you. You just have to be willing to step into it. I don't deny, I recognize it's hard. I recognize that. In contrast to the deceitful promises of drunkenness, Christ offers us true, lasting, hurt-resolving, habit-overcoming, peace-filled freedom. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So if you're in Christ, you are free. You've got to walk out that freedom sometimes, right? The reality, the objective reality of who you are in Christ, you're free in Christ. The experiential reality of you've got to walk it out, though. You've got to walk to that freedom sometimes because there's those habits and those hang-ups. So you've got to take those steps toward full freedom in Jesus Christ. To give yourself over to drunkenness, to alcohol, is to submit again to a yoke of slavery. Marshall Segal Anzi says, Alcohol only numbs the pain and blurs reality. Grace forgives and heals what is broken inside of you. That's what we need. We need grace and we need forgiveness so that what's inside of us can be healed. So that is my personal gospel-centered exhortation against drunkenness for our day-to-day lives. But I also want to consider another argument from Scripture that, that looks to our future hope as another argument against drunkenness. See, Paul, we talked about this last week, but our, our faith is a walk, right? We, 
Paul likes to use the metaphor of walking to describe our life. We are to walk by the Spirit. We are to walk by faith. And in relation to this, Paul also uses the metaphor of a race. And when we consider the race of life, we are not called to a sprint. We are called to a lifelong marathon. And like all races, there's a finish line that we are aiming at that is the culmination of our entire lives. The difference between the race of life and any other race that we run, like a marathon or anything like that, is we don't actually know where the finish line is. Or or better said, we don't know when the finish line is. Like nobody knows in here when that day will come when you have actually finished your race. Only God knows. And so we're aiming at a finish line without knowing when that finish will come. And it's with that in mind that I exhort you to get away from drunkenness, to put off drunkenness. You know, the word drunk that Paul uses in Ephesians 5.18 is found only three other places in the New Testament. And the verses surrounding them each provides a, a context or a reason for avoiding drunkenness in the Christian life. And two of them are arguing for the exact same thing. One of them is found in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus tells a parable about watchfulness. He tells a parable about staying awake and staying alert for his return. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 7, Paul describes the day of the Lord and the importance to be ready for that day when it comes. And so we are called, followers of Jesus, to be ready. We are called to be awake. We are called to be prepared for Christ's return. And the opposite of being ready and awake and prepared is drunkenness. Like when you are drunk, you are not vigilant, you are not watchful, you are not alert at all. You don't know what's going on around you. Can you imagine you are in that state and that very moment is when you finish your race and you come before Jesus Christ? No, thank you. And so the other gospel argument for avoiding drunkenness is we are called to be a people that is always alert, always awake, always ready. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. It could be right now. I may not even finish this message this morning. There you go. And we are called to be ready. Be prepared for his return. Stay sober. In Ephesians 5, 15-17, before Paul exhorts us away from drunkenness, he says himself, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. All of that is in complete contrast to drunkenness. You are not careful how you walk when you're drunk. You are not wise. You are not making the best use of your time. You are giving in to the evil day. You're usually foolish and you have no understanding. So do not be drunk with wine. Like all things, Paul doesn't just stay on the negative. He turns to the positive, to the greater thing. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. Paul's saying, just as you can unwisely fill yourself with alcohol and be influenced by its effects as a follower of Jesus, you can and should be filled with the Spirit of God and be influenced by the effects of the Spirit of God on your life when His fullness fills you. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God. The Holy Spirit is given as a seal to every person who comes to faith in Christ as a guarantee that we belong to God 
unto the day of our salvation. And he's also given us to empower our walk with Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. But God's word makes it very clear. The Holy Spirit can have differing influences on us depending on how we choose to live. Doesn't mean you don't have the Spirit, but the power of the Spirit absolutely differs depending on how you live. We can quench the Spirit's power. We can grieve the Spirit of God. We can lessen His influence and His power in our lives by the choices that we make, or we can walk by the Spirit, following Him, trusting Him to lead us and empower us, bear fruit in our lives for God's glory and the good of others. We have choices before us. And Paul commands us, be filled with the Spirit. You know what's interesting about that command? Because it is in the form of a command. It's interesting that it's command, be filled with the Holy Spirit, because being filled with the Spirit is a sovereign act of God. You can't do it. You can't just turn on a tab, whoop, filled. It has to be God who fills us. We cannot do it ourselves. But Paul is commanding us, be filled with the Spirit. So that tells me that we can certainly walk in ways that position us for God to fill us with the Spirit, to be happy to just have His Spirit dwelling fully in us. And so when Paul says filled, he means to the brim. He means complete. His, his words are in the present tense as well. And so he's saying, be filled. You know what that means? That you're not always filled to the fullness. You don't get filled to the Spirit up to the brim and then you walk the rest of your Christian life fully filled. It's not a once for all time thing. You receive Him once for all time, but you need to be filled with Him over and over and over again. We're like a cup that has a little hole in the bottom that's slowly dripping out. We've got to be refilled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts reveals a number of times the apostles and the believers are filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. We see at the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7 verse 55, it says, But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Peter, before the priests and the leaders, he's preaching the good news. It's as Acts 4 verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, and went on to school them in Jesus. There are times when we receive an extra portion of the Spirit of God. We don't do it. God does it. But we can position ourselves for it. So how do we be filled with the Holy Spirit of God? And you're like, I hate these answers because they're church answers, but they're true. Prayer. Prayer. You want to be filled with the Spirit of God? Be in prayer. We see Paul in Ephesians verse 1, 17 to 18. He's praying. He says, he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. You know what's interesting about that? That Paul says, may He give you the spirit of wisdom. You already have the spirit of wisdom if you're a follower of Christ. So the only thing that Paul can mean there is that he wants to give more, more of the spirit of wisdom. So God, may God give you the spirit of wisdom, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 19, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Again, Paul's praying, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's praying for the Christians in Ephesus. He's saying, according to the riches of God's glory, may He strengthen you with the power of His Spirit in your inner being. May you be filled with the fullness of God. And so, the first way that we position ourselves to receive the Holy Spirit of God is to pray, is to seek, is to actually want it, is to get up in the morning and desire the Spirit's power to fill us afresh for the things of the day. I fear that too many Christians get up in the morning, get out of bed, and just go on about their day because they have no expectation of God to move in their day-to-day. If you have an expectation that God's going to move in your day-to-day, then the first thing you're doing is you're waking up in the morning and you're asking, God, I need your spirit for whatever you're going to bring to me today. If you walk through your day and have no expectation that, hey, maybe I'm going to be able to evangelize to someone today. Hey, maybe I'm going to be able to bless someone today. You're not asking for more of the Spirit. But if you're waking up in the morning with an expectation of wherever you are, God can use you, you're going to ask, Father, fill me afresh so that I may see those opportunities, that I may be your hands and your feet. Second way that we position ourselves is through faith. You know, what's so interesting in Scripture is so many times throughout Scripture we see Holy Spirit and faith completely connected with one another. Acts 6 verse 5 says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. This is when the apostles were trying to decide who should serve uh, the women, the, the widows, in chapter 6 of Acts. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Faith and the Holy Spirit together. Acts eleven twenty three to 24. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Romans fifteen thirteen, Paul says, this is a prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Paul, or Paul says, may God fill you with believing, with faith, so that by the power of the Spirit, you will abound in hope. And then in Galatians 3.5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It is by hearing with faith that he supplies the Spirit to you. And so all throughout Scripture, we see Holy Spirit and faith connected intimately together, that we must walk in faith. And I'm not talking about the kind of faith where it's like, yes, I believe in Jesus. I've been saved by Jesus. Like We can have a kind of faith that trusts Jesus for the things that he's done in the past, the things that he's going to do in the future, that he's going to hold us fast. But it's that kind of faith that holds us in the day-to-day, 
The kind of faith that gets up in the morning and goes, God, I need you for every breath this morning. I need you to do anything that's going to have any sort of eternal impact on me, that we don't walk apart from the Spirit of God. It's that kind of faith that we will see the Holy Spirit just fill us afresh. So Paul said, be filled with the Spirit. I just want to end with the evidence of the Spirit's infilling. We see them in verse 19 to 21. Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in there, Paul gives us three evidences of the fullness of the Spirit in our lives. The first evidence that Paul gives is that we will address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Paul is expecting that in followers of Jesus, there's going to be this overflow of joy. There's going to be this overflow of unity with one another where we will come together like we are this morning and we will sing songs unto the Lord and unto one another. We talked about before how when you come to worship the Lord, it is not a singular, you're, you're not on your own doing that. You're not in a bubble, right? Like we got to get out of this idea that I'm here, you got your space, okay? I'm here with the Lord, you guys are over there. No, we're all together with the Lord. We are not only singing unto Him, we are singing unto one another. Because you don't know how your brother or sister walked in here this morning, and just you lifting your own praises, you lifting your own voice to the Lord can be an encouragement to them. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into the gathering of God's people and heard God's people's voices coming back at me, and it just lifts my spirit up out of the depths. And I'm just like, thank you, God, for your people. Thank you, God, that they sing praises unto your name. Some people may be here in the morning going, God, I can't sing praises, but I can just be filled by the fact that my brothers and sisters around me are able to, and I just lean on their faith. Like, that's one of the evidences of being filled, that we just have this unity, this joy as we sing unto the Lord. The second evidence of being filled with the Spirit is that we walk in thankfulness. Paul says, give thanks. We give thanks to God in all things, right? That's the key to being filled with the Spirit. That's how you know. Do you give thanks to God in the good things? Do you give thanks to God in all things? Are you like Paul sitting in jail going, praise God, praise God, because the gospel's going out. Thank you, Lord, that I get to suffer. Right? Like That is a sign of the Spirit of God. We don't do that in the natural Oh God, I'm so happy to be suffering. This is amazing. Nobody does that ever. It's only by the power of the Spirit that you can have that kind of thankfulness. And so one of the evidences of the Spirit is that we are people who thank God in the good, in the difficult, in the bad, in just the really hard. Because we know He's always at work. It's all going to be ultimately for our good. You know, I was reminded of the song Waymaker. I think most of you should know the, the song Waymaker. I was listening to the story behind that song, and the artist was talking about how one night he was at home, and his, his mom was just weeping in her room, just like beside herself. And it, they were about to get evicted. They couldn't afford their, their money for rent anymore, so they were about to get kicked out of their apartment. And so he heard his mom weeping in the room next door, and he went over to her just assuming that in her grief, she was crying out to the Lord because they were about to get evicted. And when, in fact, he goes in there, it turns out she's on her knees crying out to God for his faithfulness in everything else that they had. Like she was in the room, God, I know we're about to lose our home, but you have given us health. 
you have given me my children, they are with me. Like, whatever it may be. Right? Like, that is not a natural thing for someone to be on the evening before they get kicked out, before the Lord on their knees, weeping at his thankfulness. In the natural, we would be railing at God. What are you doing? And there's times for that. There's absolutely times for that. I'm not saying it's not ungodly to do that. Sometimes it's very godly to do that. But we will have this ability to come before the Lord and go, man, this hurts. It does not make sense. I have no idea what you're doing. And it looks like it's not redeemable. But I praise you, God, that you're at work. And what I can't see, I'm just going to trust that you're going to bring me through it. That's a spirit of God work. And the last evidence that Paul gives is, is mutual submission. Mutual submission in the body of Christ. See, the, the spirit of Jesus is a spirit that does not count itself as better than others. The spirit of Jesus is a spirit that did not count himself to be in position with God, something that he should be grasping. Instead, he humbled himself, willingly walking to the cross, willingly becoming a man and walking to the cross. And that's one of the marks of a spirit, of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we are willing to submit to one another whether it be through a rebuke, whether it be through one teaching another. Sometimes submission is just coming before brothers and sisters for prayer. Right? Trusting ourselves, entrusting ourselves to one another. So where you see division, where you see fighting for myself, my ways. It's not the spirit of Jesus. It's the spirit of the world. So church, may we be filled with the Holy Spirit. May we pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit. We need him. Not just in our day to day, but we need him in this church. Like I just spent probably too long up here talking to you. See what time it is. But all that I just did, ultimately, useless if the Spirit of God doesn't use it in your life. So may we be filled and pursue the right things. Don't give yourself over to a yoke of slavery. And, and I just want to encourage you, if you're here and you struggle with drunkenness, seek help from a brother or sister. Come and see me. I will walk that out with you. There are other brothers and sisters in here who will walk that out with you. Because the desire is to see all of us filled with the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Spirit that dwells in us. Lord, thank you for the gift of the Spirit that we receive upon coming to Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who seek your grace, who seek your forgiveness. Father, would you make us a people of perseverance? 
and a people willing to suffer. Because oftentimes, to kick hurts and habits and struggles means we have to walk through some suffering first. But on the other side of that is freedom in you. So Lord, may we be a people that doesn't see the mountain, but sees the one who's able to make that mountain move. Father, I ask for a fresh infilling of your spirit now. In the name of Jesus, that you would fill each one of us afresh this morning. That we would not try to walk in our own power, how exhausting that is, from one who knows it all too well. But we would walk by the power of your spirit. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for the freedom that comes in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.